her to explain this difficult thing. Dear Matthew, she began again. She cupped her chin in the palm of her hand, staring into the distance. She could go no further. Matthew had a penetrating instinct for the truth. He would quickly sense any evasion or lack of sincerity. And he could sniff out a lie, even from the other side of the Atlantic. She took a sip of the sharp, dry wine from her glass, let it sit on her tongue for a second, then swallowed it. She bent over the sheet of paper again, arms curled around it protectively, though there was no one in the room to peer over her shoulder. She was alone. Quite alone. Seconds later, she scrunched the paper up again, having added only five more words. I'm so very, very sorry. She lifted her head to stare into space, knowing the problem. Writing a letter was the coward's way out. Not hers. She should have boarded an aeroplane to Washington, D.C. and spoken to him face to face. For a moment she was transfixed by the image of Capitol Hill and the White House. Washington seemed such a long, long way away, as did Matthew. She stared out through the window at the square spire of Waterfall Church. She could hear some holidaymakers from the barn conversions joking. They were standing in front of the stocks, laughing at something. Probably something about bondage, it usually was. Distracted now, she watched them push open the gate and wander through the churchyard. She felt a certain envy for this cluster of happily marrieds, in T-shirts, jeans and comfortable trainers. It looked cosy and a million miles away from her current situation, which needed resolving. She bent her head again to stare at yet another blank sheet of notepaper. She must write this letter. She must find the right words. From somewhere. She had put it off for long enough and watched the problem expand, as troubles do when they are not confronted. It made it worse that she recognised the problem for what it was, an evasion. She was by nature a fighter, someone who put her fists up and prided herself on not running away from battles. So what was she doing now? Retreating, hiding, being a coward, ducking the issue. There were plenty of phrases for it, and they all meant the same thing. She was not facing her situation or dealing with it, but running away, trying to pretend it did not exist. Dear Matthew, she wrote for the sixteenth time, before being distracted again, this time by a couple of youths in a red Ford Escort, revving their car up and skidding onto the gravelled car park of the Red Lion. Again she stared through the window. The intractable problem was that there simply weren't the words in the English language to tell a man nicely that he was not going to become a father. She gulped in air. He wouldn't believe her. She could picture his face as clearly as though he was sitting opposite her, in his customary chair, legs stretched out in front of him, his eyes studying hers, as he sometimes did, usually with that odd question but this time full of doubt and suspicion. 
In spite of everything, she smiled. Matthew's chin lengthened when he was dubious about something. It became pointed and sharp, altering the shape of his face subtly, so he looked sceptical and suspicious. Her heart suddenly skipped a beat. She missed him, and she did not know whether he would ever return. He'd been gone for three months now, three eventful months, during which they'd hardly spoken. Typical Matthew, he'd immersed himself in his new project, studying gunshot wounds in Washington, D.C., and left her to make a decision alone. Except in the end, it had not been she who had decided. The choice had been torn from her while she had hardly been aware, and so the problem had, in the end, slipped away into nothing. And now she must tell him. Dear Matthew, she began again. The distraction this time was a photograph hanging on the opposite wall of him holding a tiny baby. Eloise. And there was a puzzle. Who had sent her flowers when Matthew had left? Eloise. Matthew's daughter, who had always returned her cold dislike with her own brand of pure, undisguised hatred. Who had rung her twice and asked in that odd childish voice of hers whether she was okay? Again, Eloise. Of all the strange relationships that existed in this world, this one was the strangest. An initial hatred between them which had softened, blossomed even, as Eloise had grown from a difficult, intelligent child to a strong-willed young woman. Joanna smiled again at the photograph, remembering. Eloise used to swear blind that she could remember it being taken, even though she had patently only been a few months old at the time. She must be making it up. So when would the fable subside, if ever? Who knows? Like the infant who had died, nature herself would decide. Joanna bent over the sheet of paper again, this was a task that must be done. Three miles away on the outskirts of Leek, in a square modern house on the Westwood estate, someone else was writing a letter. But whereas Joanna had struggled to find the right words, this pen was swiftly smothering sheets, finding phrases easily. I knew the very first time I met you, that this was no ordinary encounter. I knew you wanted me as much as I wanted you, but the confines of our lives are so cruel. Sometimes my passion absolutely engulfs me, overwhelms me, threatens to drown me. I love you. I don't know how many times I have to say it. I love you. We will be together one day soon. Maybe we should move away from this gossiping little town, where people feel they have the right to comment on us, on our love, on our relationship. The writer bit the pen and smiled. At the other end of the town, in another neat, detached estate house, Sergeant Mike Korpansky was scowling and chewing his lip. No easy words for him. Dear Sir, he tapped out, two-fingered on the computer. 
with reference to my letter of the 14th of June. Blast, he exclaimed, deleted the type and retyped, June. The car was locked and parked in a side street while my wife was getting the dry cleaning from the shop. When she returned, the vehicle had rolled backwards by itself and smashed into the vehicle behind it, causing some damage. It subsequently turned out that she had omitted to apply the handbrake properly. He swore under his breath. Bloody woman! Eight hundred quid's worth of damage, and all because she'd forgotten to pull the handbrake up. Hard. How many times had he told her? The handbrake's loose, so leave the car in gear if there's even the hint of a slope. Out of the window went his no-claims bonus. He swore again, swigged at a can of lager and looked through the patio doors at his son kicking a football around on the lawn. Come on, Dad, he shouted at him. Let's do shots at goal. One minute, Rick, he held his finger up to emphasise the point. Before suddenly, unpredictably, his anger burst through again. Bloody hell, Flan, he shouted in the vague direction of the kitchen. Why didn't you leave the car in gear? She stood in the doorway, slim and dark, one hand on her hip, a dishcloth in the other hand. If you'd adjusted the handbrake, Michael Korpansky, she said severely, it wouldn't have rolled. I told you it wanted sorting. He cursed again and bent back over the claim form, grumbling softly. Typical woman, to turn her own stupidity back on him and make him feel guilty. And he knew more than anyone that motoring offences hung around your neck for years. He'd have to fill in this trifling little incident every time he applied.